There are different ways of approaching the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation also known as the Apocalypse. As I said recently, we're going to do a series of things related to Revelation. So today we have another in that series. Some place the various seals and trumpets and bowls and other symbols on a chronological chart and understand these things as being symbolic of a series of events that take place in succession one after another. This is a chronological succession or progression of events. That's the way they understand uh, the symbols, seals, trumpets, and so forth in the book of Revelation. Either events spread out over a long period of time, such as 2,000 years, or events all together in the very end time, or maybe a combination of both in some cases. So you do have that. It's a chronological progression approach to the book of Revelation. Uh, A good way of understanding that is is, uh, by the way of this illustration. If you took a road trip from Louisiana to California, and you decided to take pictures along the way, just for memory's sake, and you, and with each state, each region, each area you went into, you took pictures, especially of those things that were particular to those areas. And then when you finish your trip, you lay out all your pictures in a row, in order, the order in which you took them, and you'd be able to recognize each of those places. And so you have a succession, a progression from the start in Louisiana to your finish destination in California. And so it is said by those who hold this chronological progression view that that's what we see in Revelation with the seals, the trumpets, the bowl plagues, and so on, that this is a progression of events. Okay, again, that's the chronological progression scheme of things. And then there's the recapitulation scheme. Are you familiar with that? Are you familiar with the term recapitulation? It means simply that one one vision recapitulates another. In other words, it's so there there those the visions, the seals, the trumpets, uh, the bowls, and so on that we see in Revelation. That these all symbolize the same things, only from a different perspective. And let me illustrate that for you. Well, there's some examples. First, I could use, for example, this is a common one: the seven seals that we find in Revelation 6 and elsewhere in 8. But the seven seals are said to be recapitulated by the seven trumpets. In other words, if you place them on a chart side by side, then the first seal is recapitulated by the first trumpet. Down through the seventh seal being recapitulated by the seventh trumpet. And then the bowls, the seven bowl plagues, they all speak of the same thing, only from a different angle. And the good illustration is like this. Suppose, suppose you had uh, uh, the tiger versus the Razorbacks in a football game. It's, it's a tied score, and it's right down to the last play and the Tigers. But the Tigers are down 20 yards on the 20-yard line, and uh, they're, you know, they're looking to make that. They got, uh, there's only a few seconds left in the game, and then they, the ball is snapped, and then the play is run, and touchdown, they win. Okay. If you had one angle, looking at that at one angle, if you, let's suppose you had, let's say you suppose on the sideline, each sideline, you had cameras. And let's suppose also you had a camera from the back, you know, through the back of the offense. And then you had cameras in front 
you know, from the point of view of where the goal line is that they're, they're aiming for. And suppose you even had a drone or two overhead and you could look down on it. Now, with each of the pictures you could take from those different angles, you would have the same thing. They would all be showing the same thing, that one play. You know, from the, the, the moment the quarterback takes the ball in hand to the point that the ball goes over the finish line, or I should say over the goal line. So you have all, you have all of the movement on those pictures. But each picture shows you something different, doesn't it? You know, from this angle over here, you see certain things you don't see from any other angle. From the overhead angle, you see a lot of stuff you don't see from any other angle. Same with all the angles. And so that is the way it is with the recapitulation scheme in approaching the book of Revelation. Those various descriptions are said to the various seals, trumpets, etc. are said to recapitulate each other. Another example that's sometimes used, uh, this one may sound very strange to you, but it's actually out there. And that is that uh, the description of Satan's expulsion from heaven and fall to the earth in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation and, and the description of Satan's being cast into a bottomless pit and sealed up for a thousand years until the end of the thousand years in which he's released for a, a little season in chapter 20. This chapter 20 vision is said to recapitulate the chapter 12 vision. It's just from two different angles of the same thing. So the devil is bound on the one hand, but he's running wild on the other. So, you know, you have this recapitulation. That, that way it is said that you get a full picture. Now, I think it is very clear that there is some re recapitulation in the various visions, the various uh, uh, depictions there in the book of Revelation. But I also think it is crystal clear that there is a chronological uh, a scheme presented through this series of visions. And I believe that if we can understand which is which and how things are lined up there, then we can create a framework whereby we can more easily, more accurately interpret and understand the book of Revelation. Once we have that framework in place, then other, everything else fits, and, fits on it. So I think it is clear that you have both elements of both of those, chronology as well as recapitulation in the book of Revelation. Now the seven seals describe things that occur sequentially. Remember, one seal is taken off, then the next seal is taken off, then the next. And these, uh, these represent things that, re that uh, occur sequentially, as I'm going to show you a case for that. And uh, to some extent, perhaps a large extent, they overlap each other in some cases. Six of those seals are described in one chapter. Isn't that interesting? One chapter to describe six. And then uh, a, a, they skip, a, a chapter is skipped. You have what is called an inset chapter, chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, you have the, the eighth seal. And you know, it really, the rest of the book, or much of the rest of the book, is about the eighth seal. So, and, and that eighth seal represents a major theme in the book. And that is the arrival of the day of the Lord. That's what it points to. And that is depicted by the seventh seal. Now, as I mentioned, there are also several inset chapters. Now, what's that? 
Well, an inset chapter is a chapter that we uh, that uh, is seems to be out of sequence. You have a, a story flow going there with the un, un, the stripping away of the seals. You have a certain chronological sequence taking place, and then all of a sudden you have a chapter of vision that's out of sequence. You see that in Revelation. Now, what's interesting is that in those out-of-sequence visions, you do find a degree of recapitulation. What it is, what those out-of-sequence visions do is they explain some of the previous things that have been mentioned, such as we will see an example of that in the fifth seal. Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 6 and let's take a look at the fifth seal. Revelation 6. We'll come back and look at the seals more closely a little later, but in chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now these would be the, the saints from ages past who have died for the name of Christ. They've died for their faith, the, you know, in, in faith. They died. They were martyred. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Now this is reminiscent of the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. It's not that there are actually some souls under an altar up in heaven that they're, are crying aloud. But this is reminiscent of that particular uh, text back in Genesis of where the blood of Abel cries out. It says, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know, in other words, the people who killed us. How long before you avenge them? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Not a long while, but a little while, indicating what? That whenever this cry goes out, that there's only a little time left before something very major happens. And that very major thing is the day of vengeance. That's what they're asking for. Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So, uh, in other words, it's telling us here that there will be a yet another, a future, an end, a, la- a final martyrdom of saints. Okay, so the fifth seal obviously represents a final martyrdom of saints. Those who have gone before, who have already laid down their lives for the testimony of Jesus, and who, like the blood of righteous Abel, crying from the ground, are crying for the day of the Lord's vengeance, will in fact, they are, we are in fact told that they will rest a little while longer. And as I said, this indicates that an end time event is in view here. So the martyrdom occurs prior to, and the implication you get here is just prior to the final day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. Okay? Now let's go on to, and, and I'll show you what I mean by an inset chapter in just a moment. Look, but look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Now this concerns the seventh trumpet. That moves us on out in this sequence of events. It moves us on out now toward the end. I mean, right at the end, as we shall see later. But we go to the seventh trumpet. Verse 15, notice what it says here. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, this is not saying that the kingdoms of this world have already been transformed. It proclaims the imminence and the certainty 
of this transformation of the nations. That's what he's talking about here. When the seventh angel sounds, it doesn't mean it's already been done. It just announces the imminence and the certainty of that transformation. It's, it's spoken, it speaks as if it's already done. It's, it's kind of like uh, you've seen uh, the old westerns where you have a couple of guys out in the street going to have a gunfight. And one tells the other, you're a dead man. You know, he's not dead. Yeah, that means it's certain you will be. <laughs> and then he's the one that gets shot. <laughs> but anyway, you see what we have here. So we, we see where we are, where this text is chronologically. It's right at the end. Okay? But chapter 12, the very next verse, it starts into chapter 12. You have a new vision that is introduced, and it depicts, depicts things that do not follow sequentially the seventh trumpet. That's why we would call this an inset chapter. It's out of sequence as far as any chronolo chronology is concerned. It's important to realize that because some people try to interpret all these things sequentially. And you really run into some problems. Because clearly chapter 12 takes us back to the birth of Christ. All the way back there. And uh, then brings us down to the end. We'll see how that works out. But let's just break in here in chapter, in, uh, chapter 12 and look at verse 13 first. We'll read verses 13 through 17. A little bit of comment along the way so we can kind of uh, get, a, get the idea of what's going on here. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth... He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, who is the male child? This is Christ. This is Christ. Now, who is the woman that gave him birth? You say Israel. You know, that's a common view. Israel. Okay, that's, that's fair. Uh, but in reality, can we really say, is this, this woman, you know, look at her. She's clothed with the sun, crown of stars, moon under her feet. Kind of a glorious appearance there. Is that apostate Israel that Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that slay the prophets. Is that who he's talking about? Really? I don't think so. This is obviously the ideal Zion. That's what we're looking at here. You know, there was always an Israel within Israel. There was a righteous remnant. Those who didn't bow the knee to Baal. Those who were faithful throughout a remnant. And Christ was born to that remnant. The Virgin Mary. She represents that remnant. Was she an unrighteous woman? No, 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 no. Righteous. But as far as being a righteous, God-fearing, faithful woman, she was. That was the woman selected to be the Messiah's mother. And she stands as a symbol then of the righteous remnant. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, but, you know, you, 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 some of you say that, uh, some people say, well, that's, this woman represents the church. How can that be? Because Jesus said he would build the church. It didn't exist yet. Actually, it did. It, it really did. You see, there is a continuity between the righteous remnant of Israel and the church. So it's the same thing, really. After all, what happened to Mary once the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost? Once the New Testament church was founded and up and running? She was a part of it. So really, when you speak of the woman and her children, we'll read about her children, her offspring, not only this firstborn offspring, but she has others. Uh, what you're reading about is the same thing as if you were describing Jerusalem and her children. When you say Jerusalem, you're not talking about a chunk of dirt 
piece of real estate someplace. You're talking about a people, aren't you? You're talking about the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or you can talk about Jerusalem and her children. Those two terms, Jerusalem, her children, it's the same thing, isn't it? And this is what you have here. The woman and her offspring, same thing. Okay, so yeah, the woman is the church. If you understand, how do you properly define the church? Okay, so, but the woman was given two wings. We've read that. Look at verse uh, 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. I'm not going to try to explain all of this. It's obvious, though, that God is not allowing his church, his people, to be destroyed by the serpent. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that nobody's persecuted, nobody dies martyr's death. No, no, no. Doesn't mean that. The apostles themselves died that way. And we just read in the, when we looked at the fifth seal, that uh, there's yet another martyrdom of saints coming. And it's, at the, it's as a result of the activity of Satan in this earth. Okay? Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So she has not only the firstborn, the male child, she has other children. Guess who that is? I'm looking at them. A few of them right here. Yes, that's the people of God. That's the faithful. That's those, it says here, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what do you, what you have here is this this is more or less a recapitulation of the fifth seal, isn't it? The fifth seal tells us there will be a martyrdom of saints. This fills in some of the details for us here, doesn't it? So you see why it fits here at this particular place, even though he just has described the seventh trumpet? Because, Because he goes back, fills in the details. It's out of sequence, but it's helpful because it tells us how we got here. You know, what's in the backdrop of this whole thing that's going on? So I think you can see why this is called an inset chapter. Now, in his, let's go, on to, let's go now to talk about the, uh, you, you understand how recapitulation works. Let's go on now to to look at uh, the chronological sequence we do find in Revelation. In his visionary trip to the heavenly throne room, you see that described there in Revelation. John sees a scroll, remember, maybe translated book in some translation. It's a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. Uh, He soon discovers that all the beings in heaven, of all the beings in heaven and on earth... Only one of them is qualified to remove those seals. Now, removing the seals will reveal the contents of the scroll. So then he discovers that there is one who is qualified. It's the Lamb. It's the Lamb. It's Jesus Christ. So he's qualified to open the seals and reveal the contents of the scroll. Now, as each seal is opened, a symbolic representation of some historical reality springs forth. And that starts to tell us about a certain sequence of things. Now, some of these, even though they're sequential, nevertheless, they overlap. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a few moments. So let's look at the sequence in which they are presented, and let's analyze each. But first, but first, before we look at the seals, we'll read through this chapter. 
Let's go back to Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Prophecy, and see some of the things that Jesus mentioned specifically, not in symbolic language. He did use a little symbolic language along the way, but uh, some of the things he mentions, because it's helpful in looking at what he said when his disciples asked him about the sign of his coming, about the last days and so on. It's helpful to look at what he says before we attempt to interpret uh, the seals. Uh, Matthew 24, let's start in verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Well, first of all, you can take this a couple of different ways. And the Greek would support either view. First, it could mean that many will come in my name, the name of Jesus, and say, I am the Christ, meaning Jesus is the Christ, and deceive many. Now, how can you do that if you're proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ? You can preach the things he didn't preach. You can preach an antinomian, a lawless doctrine, all kinds of things you can preach using his name, attaching his name to, and yet deceiving other people. That's one way. But there are other ways. This could also mean uh, mean many will come in my name, meaning claiming my authority, saying, I am the Christ. And you know, in the first century, there were quite a few came along making that claim, even after Jesus came along making that claim. They've done it since. I have met three since I lived in Tyler. I've met three. We often think says this is some kind of religious thing. Not necessarily. Not totally religious. In other words, false preachers, false prophets. Uh, but just because you think about it, just what? Who is the Christ? Was the Messiah? Meaning what? He's the anointed one. Anointed for what? To be king. To be king. And what does the king? What does King Messiah do? Read all about him in in the Scripture. He is called the Prince of Peace. He brings peace. He brings prosperity. He restores that which has been lost through human sins, does he not? In other words, he restores paradise. So any philosophy, any ideology, and the people, of course, who proclaim it, that comes along claiming to bring utopia is a false messiah, is it not? Was not Karl Marx... Were not the proponents of communism? Are they not false messiahs? Yeah, because communism promised utopia. What did it bring? What did Stalin bring? You know, promises of utopia and it oftentimes fall, is followed up with massive death, isn't it? Terrible, terrible times for a lot of, in some cases, millions of human beings. So there's a number of ways this could be fulfilled. The point is that somebody's going to come along claiming messianic authority. And somebody's going to come along, maybe, well, says many will come in my name. Many coming along and claiming uh, to pro- and proclaiming utopia when in fact they're bringing destruction. And this follows immediately with this next statement. He says, Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That kind of naturally follows some of these utopian uh, dreamers, doesn't it? It sure does. 
so that you be not uh, so that you are not troubled see that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet for nation shall rise against nation kingdom against kingdom kind of an order of things you have first of all the false messiahs come on the scene with false promises false hopes for utopia and then follows war rumors of wars kingdom rising against kingdom nation against nation and so on and then what follows that when nations begin to exhaust their resources on trying to build up their military might, as happened in the Roman Empire, what happens? Hey, you got to feed those armies, don't you? What happens in the wake of all that? When the food supplies are a little short anyway, what happens to the people providing the food? Well, you have famines, right? So here you have it. And there will be famines pestilences and earthquakes in various places all these he says are the beginning of sorrows so you see that sequence of things that happen there it's kind of a pattern and you look back through history you see that pattern don't you in various places in various times in history so now with all that in mind let's take a look at the the seals back in revelation chapter 6 uh, the first seal now I saw, verse 1, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Sounds like Christ, doesn't it? You know, a lot of interpreters think he's talking about Christ here. I don't think so. He certainly looks like Christ. What's the point? What did Jesus say? First thing out of his mouth. Many false Christ. Many claiming to be Christ coming in his name. So here you have the, the white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now Christ is described similarly in chapter 19, but this is someone who has some similarity to Christ, but is not Christ. And I don't think it's necessarily just one person either. Many such persons have come. Okay. Then we move on to the second seal. Remember, he, he mentions false messiahs. First in his list, the second seal. So when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword, wars and rumors of wars. Kingdom rising against kingdom, nation against nation, and so on. In Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> Verse 5, When he opened the third seal, I heard the, the, third living, uh, the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales, or a pair of balances, in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat... This is a, the Greek word refers to approximately one quart. A quart of wheat for a denarius, and that's about, a, for a wage earner, it's about a day's wage. In other words, it's a little bit, it's quite a bit for that amount of food. And three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil of the wine. So, what did Jesus mention next? Well, he mentioned things such as famines and pestilences and so forth. And then uh, here you have the fourth seal, widespread, you have, uh, well, he describes widespread death on earth. But when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Hades, and, or death, and Hades followed with him. 
in power or authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with the hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So there you have death, pestilences following on the heels of famines. So you see how these things do occur sequentially, but yet they also overlap. You know, you can have these things, all of these things going on simultaneously. Uh, but usually, so many times, false messiahs do lead to wars. Do lead, that does lead to famines. It does lead to pestilences and, of course, widespread death. Now, so we see the first four seals. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're called. The apocalypse, the word the apocalypse, that's, that's another name for the book of Revelation. That's why it's called the four horsemen of the Revelation or the apocalypse. Now, back to Matthew 24 again. Let's see what he goes on to say here. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Who's he talking to? His disciples. People who follow him. They will deliver you up to tribulation. You notice the word tribulation here? This is one of the tribulations he talks about in Matthew 24. It's, you know, a lot of people think he only mentions the one, the one that comes upon Jerusalem. But that's not true. Here's a tribulation upon the saints... And in this text, you're going to see it's beyond, it goes beyond just on the followers of Christ. It's very widespread. Okay? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. We read that, didn't we? Fifth seal? Yeah, that's the one that comes after the four horsemen. Yeah. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. In other words, it's a turbulent time. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. He's describing a time, a broad time, you know, a t- general, time of general tribulation. Okay, again, the tribulation specifically upon Jerusalem is not the only tribulation described in the Olivet Prophecy. This is tribulation, tribulation upon the saints because of their faith, and tribulation in the world due to lawlessness, widespread lawlessness. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then, then the end will come. So even in spite of all the turbulent times and all the martyrdom and persecution, nevertheless, the gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness, and then, as it says here, the, the end will come. Now again, I don't, I'm not going to reread it, but we read the fifth seal. What did we read? Martyrdom of saints. So what does, uh, So we're basically reading the same thing. It's, just, it's the same order of events, isn't it? Martyrdom of saints, persecution, and so on. Okay, back to Matthew 24. I'm going to skip the section about the tribulation coming upon Jerusalem because, as I said, that's not the only tribulation he talks about. He says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Which tribulation does he mean? Well, some people take this to mean the tribulation upon Jerusalem. But I've said before, and I believe, that that primarily speaks of the A.D. 70 event now, it may be a type of a future tribulation on Jerusalem, but the tribulation I think that he's referring to here is much broader than the one on Jerusalem. Much broader than that. It's widespread lawlessness that leads to that. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon 
will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You can take that a couple of different ways. It's up to you. I won't try to influence you one way or the other. But you know, you go back and read the prophets, and that's the same kind of language they used in reference to the fall of nations. And basically what the prophets meant by it is, for example, uh, you could speak of uh, the, the, the brightly lit starry nights over Babylon. And you talk in terms of the stars have gone out. That doesn't mean that the stars literally went out. What it means is Babylon fell. In other words, there is no longer any starry night over Babylon. It's now somebody else's kingdom. You understand the, the use of that kind of language? Some, some have argued that that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You decide for yourself. Others argue that, no, no, there's actually some kind of heavenly display going on. Something that gets everybody's attention. A celestial display of some sort. It could be described in terms of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light. In other words, possibly through, through widespread volcanic activity, spewing debris into the air, into the atmosphere. Possibly. Some have suggested that. I'll leave it up to you. The point is, here you talk about some kind of cosmic disturbance. Okay? Then the, sign, then, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Now, you read all of these, these verses here, 29 and 30, these couple of verses, together, and you think in terms of something happening in one fell swoop, maybe in an hour or two, maybe in one 24-hour period. But, you know, it doesn't really say that, does it? This could be something that is spread out for a period such as the heavenly signs. That could last for a while, whatever that means, however you interpret that. And also the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. You know, I used to think that meant, well, that's when the Son of Man himself is actually returning, but not necessarily. Some kind of sign indicating, showing very clearly, very strongly, uh, even to the unbelieving world, that he is coming soon, very soon. So the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven, and then... At some point within this final scenario, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. In other words, they're going to know something is going on that's really, really serious. Something that is, well, from their perspective, destructive to them. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's when finally he does appear and he descends. This is when the saints are caught up. But you know, these two verses here, I think, are more than likely describing more than just a single, a single event in one day. But it's some things spread out over time. You have first the celestial signs, however you interpret that. Then you have the sign of the Son of Man in heaven revealing that he is about to appear, and then he actually appears. And that could take place over a period of time. What, weeks? Months? A year? Could. Could be. I'm not going to, I wouldn't make any conclusions there. But I do want to show you the parallel in the sixth seal. Take a look at the sixth seal. Back in Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold... There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. Didn't we read that just now? I think we did. And the moon became like blood. I don't think that's your common blood moon. 
And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by mighty winds. Here you have these celestial signs, the heavenly signs. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, now notice this, what happens when these celestial signs, and obviously terrestrial signs as well, when they appear, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves. All the tribes of the earth mourn. Get that? Hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Is there a sign that they're somehow seeing here? From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay? Hide us from this. So apparently they see that this is happening or about to happen. Some kind of sign to indicate it. It says, for the great day of his wrath has come. Again, this is not saying that it's already coming. It means it is imminent. It is imminent. It is upon them. The signs show that it is upon them. The great day of his wrath, that's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And who is able to stand? So you have these signs announcing the coming of the day of the Lord. People are so fearful, filled with fear, because wrath is upon them now. And then we come to the eighth seal, and that is the day of the Lord. That is the day of God's wrath. So now, as we complete the sixth seal there with the heavenly signs, the stage is set for the opening of that seventh seal, which is described not in the next chapter, but in chapter 8. Remember what we said about inset chapters. In chapter 8, as I said, uh, the seventh seal represents the great day of his wrath or the day of the Lord. But chapter 7 shows that something must be done before divine wrath is unleashed. And you can guess what that is. Of course, you look at chapter 7, you will see what that is. The servants of God are to be sealed in their foreheads. Now, you can interpret that various ways, and it has been interpreted many ways, but I think it's really simple. Because this section is drawing from the imagery of Ezekiel chapter 9. Remember the example there where those who sigh and cry over the abominations committed in Jerusalem are marked on their foreheads by the man with the writer's ink horn? They're marked. And then what happens? Men wielding battle axes go through the city, and they're told to kill and not spare. Go through the city and kill everyone who doesn't have the mark. So this chapter here, uh, this, this, uh, this seventh seal, or this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, is, this is drawing from Ezekiel 9. Chapter, chapter 7, I should say, is drawing from Ezekiel 9, the imagery of Ezekiel 9. And you have the servants of God being sealed in their foreheads. It says, uh, it tells us, in fact, the servants of God, and they're described as 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel, and as an innumerable multitude from all nations and tongues and tribes and peoples. Now, I've said it before, and I still, I do believe it, that the 144,000 are included within the great multitude. It's not two separate groups, as some claim. One is on earth having to go through the tribulation, the other is up in heaven. Now, you get the, may get the impression that uh, 
the great multitude is in heaven while the 144,000 is on the earth. You know, and in Hal Lindsey's old book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, he claims that the 144,000 or 144,000 uh, Jewish, you call them Jewish, you know, Israelite, Billy Grahams. I'm thinking, now where is that in the text? They're out preaching the gospel and converting people during the tribulation period, while the rest of the church, those who were already converted by the time the tribulation began, are, 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 are been raptured to heaven. And the reason they come up with this is because, partly because of the language, and I say they're over-literalizing it. Because it says that the great multitude are before the throne of God, where they serve Him day and night. That sounds like, oh, they are, they're up in heaven. Remember what kind of text we're reading here, though. This is apocalyptic literature. It is highly symbolic. You know, we also read elsewhere in the New Testament that you and I are seated in heavenly places. Are we? Well, but what does that mean? It speaks of relationship, not where you are physically. Okay? Same with this. This speaks of being in communion with Him. And also, it is a proleptic picture that points to these people's being forever with God and His family, in His family and in His kingdom. So it's proleptic. It describes the people of God now, or in this period, as if they're already experiencing the glory of the kingdom, because that is the outcome for them. You understand that? What I'm getting at there is proleptic. So we have the use of what is called prolepsis in this, in this chapter. So we see here that the seven trumpets... Well, we will see it as we get to it, but we're going to see that the seven trumpets actually recapitulate the seventh seal. Not the seven seals, but the seventh one. We'll see that as we go through this. So this, as, as we understand what's going on in chapter 7, it's an inset chapter, gives us a little background on what's going on, why we're where we are at this particular point. Then and we move on to, chapter, to the seventh seal of Revelation chapter 8. Let's look at it. We'll read verses 1 and 2 and 6. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. You've heard the old joke, I'm sure. That's proof that there ain't no women in heaven because how many women can stay silent for half an hour? Well, that's not funny. <laughs> no. 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 I don't know why Ken is laughing so hard. But anyway, no, that's, I, I, that's an old joke. It's been told over and over over the years, and you've probably heard it in the past. But no, that's what it means. What does it mean, though? You know, we can speculate about it, but I have an opinion. I have an opinion. And that is that the, the reason for the silence is because with the stripping away of the, or the opening of the seventh seal, this means something, something is about to happen that is just absolutely breathtaking. The day of intervention is now beginning. And this is the day, the general time period, that will culminate in the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And I think the heavenly throne room, the, the multitude in the heavenly throne room, surrounding, giving all their attention to the center of attention here, who is Christ. And they see Him in all His glory as He is about to step into this world and about to change things on planet earth. And so they're in awe, silent. I think that's really what this text is telling us here. 
So when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Okay, so the seventh seal now has something to do with seven trumpets also. And as we go, are going to see, the seven trumpets represent certain plagues. It's still a part of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. <clears throat> Verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So the, seven, the, uh, the seventh angel then, which depicts... Uh, this, I'm sorry, the seventh seal, as we have discussed, this depicts the day of the Lord. Okay? The day of God's wrath. Uh, we see from this that it is then made up of seven trumpets. The seven trumpets. And here's what they represent. Number one, the first angel sounds, vegetation is struck. Number two, I'm not going to read through it, I'll just summarize them for you. The seas are struck. The third angel sounds, the waters, that's the rivers, the streams, the springs of fresh water, and so on, are struck. And number four, uh, when the fourth angel sounds, the, the heavens are struck. So what do you have here? Your vegetation, the seas, the fresh waters, and the atmosphere. That's pretty much man's life support system, isn't it? So it's somehow, in some way, adversely affected here. And that's just four trumpets. Now you think that sounds pretty bad. It is pretty bad. You think it sounds pretty bad, but you know the worst is yet to come. The last three trumpets are called the three woes. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Things are about to get worse. Not going to be gentle like before. <laughs> if I may borrow a line from... One of the Clint Eastwood movies. <laughs> so things are about to get worse. And so you have the three woes. The fifth trumpet sounds and locusts come out of the bottomless pit and torment men for five months. Now I actually read someplace that uh, speculation that these locusts might be because mankind or men are experimenting with genetics and all that stuff. There might be giant mutant locusts or insects that come out. No, it's not. It's not. They come out of the bottomless pit. What is that? That's the habitation of evil. So these are forces of evil coming out to torment men, it says, for five months. Now, interestingly, in verse 4, we read, They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only, this is the, what I want to call your attention to, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Showing what? That the purpose of the sealing that we read about back in chapter 7 is sealed for protection, just as we see back in the book of Ezekiel. The man with the writer's inkhorn and those who are marked who cry and sigh over Jerusalem. So this does show the sealing described in chapter 7 is to mark the servants of God out for protection, which means they're still going to be here, not going to be up in heaven, they'll be here and be protected. Now, you know, that's, that's, that's sometimes a controversial subject for some people, you know, this idea of a place of safety or condition of safety. Well, it doesn't matter because what he's talking about here is not safety during the tribulation brought on by the devil. God is marking these people out because they're his own and his wrath is being poured out now upon ungodly men. So obviously 
He's not going to pour out his wrath upon his own. It's like the Passover in ancient Egypt. You know, there was a mark placed on the homes for protection, protection of the firstborn. And the death angel passed over. That was, that was the wrath of God. God sent the angel, and the firstborn all over Egypt were destroyed, but not those that had the mark. And you see something similar to that here. It's protection of the people of God, those who keep the commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus during the day of his wrath. So what we're seeing here is, uh, well, going to the sixth, the sixth uh, trumpet, uh, this is when the angels of the Euphrates uh, prepare an army of 200 million horsemen to kill a third of mankind, we're told. And then we come to a couple of inset chapters. In them, we find some interesting clues regarding the seventh angel. Chapter 10, verse 7 states, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. This tells you where you are chronologically with the sound of the seventh angel. <clears throat> this is not only the seventh, does not, the seven trumpets not only make up the seventh seal, they recapitulate the seventh seal. But also, this represents that time when Christ will appear. The mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. And then in chapter 11, we find a description of the two witnesses, their ministry, how they're killed, and their resurrection. I won't go into that today. Uh, verse 14 prepares us for the final trumpet. It says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That's the last trumpet. Verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud noises in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Again, proclaiming the imminence of, of the kingdoms of this world being transformed. So obviously this refers to, the seventh trumpet refers to the coming of Christ, of his actual appearance in the sky above and his descent to the earth. And uh, it's depicted as the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And that's not all, though. That's not all. That's not the end of it. The seventh trumpet is made up of seven more plagues. The seven bowl plagues. Each bowl is poured out. Each bowl represents some kind of plague making up the wrath of God. It says, uh, but anyway, but before we get to the description of these, we, we come to a couple of inset chapters again. Chapter 12, we've already discussed, describes the woman, the male child, and the dragon. Chapter 13, the dragon's chief agents are presented to us. The beast from the sea and the beast from the land, called also, known also as the beast and the false prophet. Then chapter 14 provides a proleptic portrait of the Lamb and the 144,000 or the servants of God. Uh, the proclamation of the three angels, we'll look at that at some point along the way. The three angels' messages, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists emphasize that uh, very, very big. You know, they're very big on that. And there is an important message in that. But uh, then also you find the reaping of the earth's harvest and the reaping of the grapes of wrath. Now we come to chapter 15 and verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So we're still in the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is made up of the seven bowls, or last plagues, which complete the wrath of God. Okay? 
So you could say the in, in chapter 16, the description of the bowls, the bowl plagues, this recapitulates the seventh trumpet. And here they, here they are. These are the bowl plagues. Number one, I'll just go through these quickly, is loathsome sores. When the first bowl is poured out, loathsome sores appear on men. Number two, the sea turns to blood. Now, exactly how much symbolism and how much literalism is here, we, you, know, you have to guess for yourself. Whatever it, whatever it is, it's bad. <laughs> you just remember that. Whatever it is, it's bad. Yeah. The sea turns to blood. The third bowl is poured out. Waters are turned to blood, meaning the fresh waters. The fourth, men are scorched with fire. The fifth, darkness and pain for the beast's kingdom. So you see the wrath of God being poured out on the beast and his kingdom. Uh, number six, the Euphrates is dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. That takes us directly to the second coming of Christ. And they're gathered at Armageddon. And then number seven, the earth is utterly shaken. So here, here's a summary. Here is the framework that you want to keep in mind as you approach the book of Revelation. It'll help you understand it. Here it is. The seven seals. The first four of those seals are the four horsemen representing false Christs, wars, famines, deaths, and so on. Death and, so on. and then uh, the fifth seal, martyrdom of saints during the time of great tribulation. Number six, the sixth seal is the heavenly signs, a prelude to the day of the Lord. And number seven is the day of the Lord. The seventh seal equals the seventh trumpets. In other words, the seventh seal, the seven trumpets recapitulate the seventh seal. Not all seven, as some people assume, but the seventh seal. And then the seventh trumpet is equal to the seven last plagues. In other words, the seven bowl plagues recapitulate the seventh trumpet. So that's the framework. You follow that framework, you can see a chronological sequence, and then you can understand which are inset chapters and uh, which are not. And you can see, you know, you can, you can uh, better understand, better approach the book of Revelation. Now, in chapters 17 and 18, we read of the great harlot named Mystery, Babylon the Great, and her association with the beast and her ultimate fate, her fall. And this takes place within the fifth through the seventh seal. So there's some recapitulation going on here. So again, these are inset chapters, and they give us more detailed information on what brought the world to this place. And finally, we get to Revelation chapter 19. Of all of these events being described in terms of seals and trumpets and bowl plagues, we come now to the climax of it, and that's in chapter 19, where we read about the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's read a portion of this, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Notice the similarity of the white horse we read about earlier. But this is the real thing here. This is the true Christ, not false Christs. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, not out of deception, not in unrighteousness, but in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, you, as we read through this description, you know, remember that there are a lot of people out there who 
they read the Old Testament and then they read something in the New Testament and say, you know, I just don't like that, that, that God of the Old Testament. I don't like him at all. He's always bringing forth judgments and he's always uh, cursing nations and causing destruction. And I, But you come to the New Testament and Jesus is friendly. And, uh, well, of course, he is friendly. But you come to the New Testament and Jesus doesn't do all those things. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus does here. It says he judges and makes war. In righteousness, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. That's his name. Now, and obviously that identifies him, doesn't it? But you notice that here it says his, his, uh, he's clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood. Many people read that and they think about the blood of Christ. They think about the blood by which we're saved. But in this context, in this description, I don't think that's what he means here. His robe is dipped in blood. That means his blood drenched. Why? Because of what he is doing to the ungodly, to the enemies. This is what he is doing at Armageddon. So his, his clothes, he's clothed the robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. You know, I've seen various depictions of this. I like the one where he has the sword clenched between his teeth for easy access. Takes it out and uses it. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Does that not sound pretty much like the God of the Old Testament? <laughs> the same thing. You're reading a different version of the same thing. The same kind of wrath being poured out. Now let me just mention this, though. The purpose of wrath, it's not for wrath's sake in itself. The purpose of divine wrath is to, is to produce repentance. That's what it is. That's the reason God brought wrath upon Israel for disobedience. Not because he just wanted to hit them, you know, not just because he wanted to punish them, he was mad, but because he wanted them to repent. So what you're reading about when you read about the wrath of God, you're talking about Christ here dealing with the wicked, and out of all of this, hopefully, some will repent. So he, tread, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Have you ever tried to picture that? Have you seen, you've seen people treading a wine press before, haven't you? You know what that looks like. They've got all those grapes in the vat, and they're, they're treading, and the grape juice is coming out of usually some spout down there someplace into containers. They use that for wine. Uh, but, to, you know, here you, he's he's tread, the wine press he's treading is not merely grapes. He's treading underfoot the wicked. And the idea here is they're being trod, trodden underfoot and destroyed. He's dealing with them. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That definitely identifies him. So here you have it. There you have it. That's, uh, of course, you could go on and talk about the millennial reign, the white throne judgment, and also the uh, new heaven and new earth. But here, this brings us to the conclusion of that period known as the wrath of God. 
in the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, in one sense, continues right on. Uh, But in the other sense, in the sense of being the day of wrath and judgment, here it is. This is this is the climax of it right here. So if you can keep this that scheme in mind, remember, you have the seven seals. The seventh seal is recapitulated by the seven trumpets. You have the seventh trumpet, the last three of which are the three woes, are recapitulated by the seven bowl plagues. And you see these things occurring sequentially. If you have that basic framework, then you can figure out the inset chapters and you can approach Revelation. If you can keep that scheme in mind, then you have a framework for understanding the apocalypse.